Hello, and welcome to Scrub Up, a podcast designed specifically for medical students to help fine-tune your knowledge in gynaecology. I'm Lucy Richards, your show host and education fellow in obstetrics and gynaecology at the John Hunter Hospital and University of Newcastle, and we're recording today on a Awabakal land. So today I'm joined by Dr. Angela Dunford, who's a paediatric and adolescent gynecologist here at John Hunter Hospital. So thanks so much, Ange, for joining me and welcome. Hi, Lizzie. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. So today, Ange, we have a case of Emma, who is a 28-year-old female. She's been referred through from her GP with severe dys- dysmenorrhea. Emma says she's always suffered from painful periods and when she was 13 she'd started on the pill which seemed to kind of settle her symptoms down for a few years. She ceased this about 18 months ago and her pain's become worse over time and now she's experiencing pain um, in the three days leading up to her period and then for another sort of five days through her period. They aren't particularly heavy her periods. She has a medical history that's significant from migraines Um, she's never been pregnant before, she seems otherwise to be fairly fit and well um, and has a regular sexual partner but describes that intercourse has been pretty painful um, so doesn't have sex particularly often. Um, She does come with a bit of information with her her referral. She's had an ultrasound and that shows a normal structure and size of the uterus and tubes and ovaries but the left ovary looks a little bit um, immobile and tender. On examination, Emma has a soft abdomen, which is um, tender and deep palpation, but pelvic examination is otherwise pretty unremarkable and no evidence of an infection when you do a speculum and no palpable nodules um, to the rectum or uterosacral ligaments, but she is pretty tender in all her pelvic floor muscles. Um, And importantly, a bedside urine dipstick um, for both pregnancy um, and any infection is negative. So... Um, there's a lot in that information, but Ange, um, this is a pretty common referral into a general gynecology clinic, and it's common in younger women, particularly that you see in your adolescent clinic. Um, but maybe before we launch into kind of how we'd approach the case, if you wouldn't mind just sort of explaining to us a little bit about um, dysmenorrhea or period pain, and does that always just mean there's endometriosis, or can you explain that a bit? That's a really good question, Lucy, and it's often one that the patients come with for their visit. Primary dysmenorrhea is really common in adolescents and young women, and painful periods during menses are actually secondary to prostaglandin release during endometrial slothing, and then that causes uterine contractions. What those contractions do is lead to short periods of ischemia and then an accumulation of anaerobic metabolites, and that stimulates the type C pain fibres, causing dysmenorrhea. Primary dysmenorrhea is what we use to describe periods that start being painful um, and the period pain usually diminishes 12 to 72 hours later um, and when there's no other disorder that can account for that pain. It tends to improve over time as the ovulatory cycles establish themselves. Endometriosis is one of the pain causes of secondary dysmenorrhea. Other things we need to think about are adenomyosis, fibroids, pelvic adhesions, pelvic inflammatory disease, or structural abnormalities such as cervical stenosis or hematometra. Okay, so that's dysmenorrhea. But what about endometriosis? For the, for the benefit of our students, would you be able to just describe exactly what is endometriosis and how does it form? What's the pathophysiology of this disease? 
Endometriosis is a condition of the endometrial glands, which are usually present within the uterus. But when these glands are found outside of the uterus, that's when we see endometriosis. It's most commonly located in the pelvis, but much more infrequently we can see it in distant sites such as the vagina, old surgical scars, and even the lung or pleura. You can have superficial lesions on the peritoneum or deeper lesions in the bladder, the bowel, the rectum, the uterosacral ligaments can form nodules. And you can also get cysts of endometriotic tissue called endometriomas, and they most commonly present on the ovaries. Endometriosis is surprisingly common, and it probably affects just over 11% of Australian women. It's most commonly diagnosed when those young women are in their um, early to mid-30s. but the delay in diagnosis is improving a little bit because previously they've had approximately a lag of eight years to diagnosis. But we don't really know exactly what causes endometriosis. There are a couple of theories. The first one is retrograde menstruation, where this endometrial tissue spills back into the pelvis during periods when the uterus is contracting, and these cells then remain in sight. This is supported by studies of women with obstructed menstrual flow, Given that retrograde menstruation is really common though, we don't know why some women develop it and some women don't. So we think that other factors are present that helps those endometrial cells stick and then proliferate. And this is maintained through a bunch of molecular mechanisms, systemic and localised steroidogenesis, localised inflammatory response and immune dysregulation, plus vascularization and innovation. The second theory is selenic metaplasia, which is where there's a transformation of the peritoneal mesothelium into that glandular endometrium. The third theory is that there's lymphatic and vascular spread, like metastases, and that may explain why there's extra pelvic endometriosis in sites like the lung that's just a long way away from where those tissues would usually be exposed to endometrial cells. And the final theory is that you can get endometriosis iatrogenically. And this is why we see endometriosis deposits along surgical scars like cesarean section wounds or laparoscopic port sites. The cells and tissues, when they're located outside of the uterus, elicit an inflammatory and an immune response. And then we get production of cytokines, chemokines and prostaglandins. And the environment promotes lesion proliferation, but also pain as the lesions contain nerve fibres stimulated by inflammatory mediators. We think that there's genetic variation to account for about 26% of the risk of getting endometriosis, and there's exciting new research suggesting there might be microorganisms involved in the process too. Great. So... We know that endometriosis, there's a number of different ways that it can form, um, but we don't know the exact mechanism um, and overall it's incredibly common. So if we go back to um, our case, um, obviously in this case with Emma, she presents with period pain or dysmenorrhea, but there can be some other presenting symptoms for endo. Um, what What are kind of the common things we see? That's one of the really interesting things about endometriosis because it can even be asymptomatic. But I like to think of the four Ds for common presentations. Dysmenorrhea, dysgesia, which is pain on defecation, dysuria, and dyspyronia or pain during intercourse. There can be nonspecific symptoms like fatigue and bloating, nausea or abnormal uterine bleeding. 
And about 30 to 50% of women with endometriosis will experience some degree of infertility. There are some really rare symptoms, but they mainly relate to those extra pelvic endometriotic deposits, such as hemoptysis or pneumothorax. All right, fantastic. So on this occasion, when we meet Emma in the outpatients clinic, um, we're not worried about necessarily other more acute things happening. But sometimes uh, we see women with endometriosis for the first time in the emergency department. And I guess in that particular setting, when someone's got an acute flare of pain, what are some of the important differentials that are running through your head um, that you need to exclude in that acute setting? Yeah, that's right, Lucy. So the important thing is that we rule out those things that require urgent treatment. The first thing to exclude is an ectopic pregnancy, and we can usually do that with a serum beta-HCG. We need to exclude ovarian torsion, and that's probably a podcast all on its own, but consider using an ultrasound scan to help your differenti- you know, differentiate that from endometriosis. Um, thirdly, a cyst rupture with a large hemorrhage. Checking hemoglobin is important. Um, And then there are non-gynae causes that we shouldn't forget about, such as appendicitis, renal colic, pyelonephritis, and for those ones, consider doing inflammatory markers and a urine test. It's also important that we don't forget pelvic inflammatory disease, and this is really a clinical diagnosis. So look for things such as cervical discharge and cervical motion tenderness on a really good um, bimanual pelvic examination. Awesome. That's a really good summary. And thankfully, Emma's not in the emergency department today, but we still do need to kind of work out what's going on for her. Um, Emma's come with an ultrasound that's showing her uh, ovary is a little bit adherent. And I wonder if you can just touch on the diagnosis of endometriosis. Do we use ultrasound always to diagnose endo is is what she's got enough to say that she has endometriosis or are there any other good tests? Ultrasound's really sensitive and specific for deep infiltrating endometriosis and endometriomas, particularly when it's an ultrasound performed in very capable, experienced hands. But it's not yet great for picking up superficial disease. So some of the signs that we can see on ultrasound that indicate more severe disease are a negative sliding sign, which is where we look with a transvaginal probe at the uterus and the pouch of Douglas and assess how these tissues move over each other as the probe is moved. And we also assess for ovarian mobility in the same way. We can detect deep infiltrative endonodules in the rectum and the uterosacral ligaments, as well as those endometriotic cysts, particularly on the ovaries. We're increasingly using examination techniques looking at the pouch of Douglas and backfilling via the cervix in the uterus with fluid, and we can see very subtle changes that might indicate superficial lesions. But in general, these are really only assessed by subspecialized ultrasound units and they aren't widely available, and you need to um, request an endometriosis-specific scan. An alternative imaging modality is an MRI, which can be useful in some cases and particularly for younger patients where you're not able to do a transvaginal ultrasound scan. CA125 is a tumour marker that we use for epithelial ovarian cancers, but it can be elevated in endometriosis. We currently, though, recommend that it's not used as a screening test for endo. And classically, a diagnostic laparoscopy was really the gold standard diagnostic tool, but Because there's risks with surgery, it's really considered now better to treat presumptively based on symptoms or ultrasound features 
And often laparoscopy for those patients where the disease isn't responding to first-line therapies who will really benefit from the surgical approach. Perfect. So although Emma's ultrasound doesn't show overt disease per se, that stuck ovary is a little bit suspicious. And based on her symptoms, I think we can fairly go ahead and initiate some treatment, presuming that she might have endometriosis. Um, So is it okay, Ange, if you walk us through what are those first line options for treatment or what are our medical options for treatment of endometriosis? I like to break this down into three groups. The first one's pain management. The second is hormonal suppression. And the third one is other adjunct therapies that can help. So talking about pain management, because we know that pelvic pain and in particular endometriosis is an inflammatory state, non-steroidals are really the best medication that we can use to deal with the pain. I always use Panadol as well just to help the non-steroidals work better. And we know that opiates aren't great medications for endometriosis-type pain. There's also non-medical pain management techniques such as heat packs, physiotherapy and exercise, and also TENS machines. In terms of hormonal suppression, there hasn't really been any evidence to show that one is superior to the other, and the choice depends on the patient you've got in front of you, their preferences and their medical history. So things like the combined oral contraceptive pill taken either continuously or cyclically, the Implanon, the Mirena IUD, or Depo three-monthly injections. Other adjuncts we can use to help those main um, pain management techniques um, are acupuncture, TENS machines, as I mentioned above, Chinese herbal medicines, B1, B6, magnesium, and fish oils. And if the first-line hormonal therapies aren't effective, then we consider some of the second-line therapies such as um, Dynagest, which is uh, the brand name is Vizan, available in Australia, Danazole, which is an anti-androgen, GnRH agonist, which has developed some increasing evidence of late. Um, If we are using those for a long time, though, so we usually use them for no more than six months, but we may need to consider some add-back therapy with estrogen and progesterone. And that's because they can cause those severe menopausal side effects and affect young women's bone health particularly, yeah. Yeah, that's right, Lucy. Mm-hmm. And so um, there looks like there's a, a big spectrum of options for Emma um, to try and start managing her pain. But as we progress through the consultation, Emma reports that in fact the reason why she stopped taking the pill about 18 months ago is because her and her partner have been trying to fall pregnant. So um, in fact um, having tried to fall pregnant for 18 months at least she already her and her partner meet the criteria for primary infertility. So that means um, uh, I guess the question is how does that then change your approach um, in your consultation um, and your management going forward? I guess now we're really talking about defining your patient's goals for their treatment. And for Emma and lots of patients, those goals change over time. So now her goals have changed in that she wants a family. So those hormonal options that we discussed earlier are no longer appropriate because we don't want her on contraception. In this instance, given that now infertility is her primary issue, I'd be arranging some additional investigations for both her and her partner to exclude other causes of infertility. Um, 
some things to mention would be a, a semen analysis, a hormone profile, checking to confirm that she's ovulating and also looking at tubal patency. And then discussing referring her on to a fertility specialist for further specialised care. We'd also want to maximise her pain management um, during her periods because we don't really have those non-hormonal therapies to assist further. And an alternative therapy for Emma in this instance is surgery, um, which we can offer for the indication of treatment of her pain, but also to look into treatment of her infertility as well as combining it with tubal studies uh, if we decided to go down that road. <laughs> so speaking of surgery, we did talk uh, just about how not everyone who has endometriosis necessarily needs surgery, but there are times that we'd recommend it. So, um, Ange, can you talk through what the indications for surgery are and, and what's sort of the evidence around where surgery is most beneficial? So the most common indication for surgery is when we're trying to treat pain and all of those first-line options that we've talked about have failed. We aim to resect the disease completely and excision has been shown in studies to be superior to ablation. And there's very good evidence that middle in, minimally invasive surgery like laparoscopy is superior to open surgery. In severe endometriosis, we really have to balance the risks and benefits of surgery. So considering things like the possibility of bowel resection and the complications of that, and also involving the teams that need to help you out with those surgeries, because what we really want to do is one operation and do it properly at the right time with the right team. We can also consider surgery in the context of infertility, like with Emma. So there's evidence that excising stage 1 to 2 disease can improve spontaneous fertility rates. And as I mentioned earlier, we can perform dye studies at the same time. And that's where the tube is flushed to confirm that it's patent. In severe disease, though, it's less certain if surgery is beneficial. And it's less certain if surgery has a benefit in women who are planning to undertake IVF anyway. And we need to consider things like ovarian surgery having its own impact on fertility because we know that cystectomies can decrease AMH levels. So we also need to think about fitness for surgery as well. So things like BMI, other medical comorbidities and whether there's been previous surgery in the past. So we should individualise the assessment of the risk of all of the complications to the patient we've got in front of us. That's great. Thank you. So on this occasion, we go ahead and we book Emma for surgery and she has a laparoscopy performed a few months later, which shows superficial peritoneal disease in the patch of Douglas, which is excised. She has some filmy adhesions between the left ovary and the pelvic sidewall, but the anatomy otherwise looks normal and dye studies reveal patent tubes. After the surgery, Emma wants to know how severe her endometriosis was. And you mentioned just before um, stage one to two disease. Are you able to give us a bit of an idea of how we grade endometriosis? Yeah, sure. There are a few different classification systems that are exist just to add to the confusion with endometriosis. But the most well-known one arranges endometriosis into stages from one to four, and that's known as the Revised American Society of Reproductive Medicine classification. This uses the number and depth of infiltration of lesions, and in this system, Emma would fit into stage one disease. Unfortunately, the severity of endo stage on this system doesn't really tend to correlate with the risk of pain or infertility symptoms, 
And at the moment, we still don't have a really good model to predict which of those patients with endometriosis will experience more pain or fertility um, problems. Yes. And so is the challenge of endometriosis still, hey? So um, Emma uh, recovers well from her surgery and she has a really good improvement in her pain initially. You arrange for her to be seen in the fertility clinic. However, when you see her six months later, she excitingly tells you that she's found out she's pregnant and she's got a confirmed intrauterine pregnancy, luckily not an ectopic that due to her endometriosis she's a little bit more at increased risk of, um, on her dating ultrasound and uh, is very, very happy with her outcome. Um, So good news. It's great news. Uh, But it's important also to remember during this consultation that women with endo are at some increased risk in pregnancy. So that needs to be thought about and counseled during your visit. There's some low to moderate quality evidence showing that women with endometriosis are more at risk of gestational diabetes, as well as preterm birth, premature pre-labor rupture of membranes or PPROM, hypertensive disorders, stillbirth, cesarean section, obstetric hemorrhage, and IUGR. And for women with persistent pelvic pain secondary to their endometriosis, that pain might may get worse during pregnancy, and we really need to consider that and provide some ongoing assistance to manage that. So still so much more to understand about endometriosis, Um, but that concludes our case for this week of Emma with endometriosis. Thank you so much, Ange, for joining me. I really appreciate your help and your knowledge working through this important case. So I just want to quickly summarize what I think are some of the great key points to take away from the discussion today. Uh, The first is when assessing endometriosis symptoms, think of the four Ds, dysmenorrhea, dyspyunia, dyskesia, and dysuria. The important differentials to consider when you've got an acute pelvic pain are ectopic, ovarian torsion, hemorrhagic hemorrhagic cyst, PID, and those non-gynae causes like appendicitis, renal colic, and pylo. The diagnosis of endometriosis is by a clinical assessment, history and exam, and ultrasound can be useful for more severe disease, but laparoscopy is not required for the diagnosis. We can go ahead and treat without that laparoscopy based on symptoms alone. And finally, First-line treatment for endo is non-hormonal NSAIDs and paracetamol versus um, hormonal treatment with the pill, marina, depo, implanon. We still haven't decided which of those is superior, any which one that our patient likes uh, will suit. So I'll pop a couple of useful resources and guidelines in the show notes, um, including our Australian endometriosis guidelines, the European guidelines, and some other important links. I'm Lucy Richards and this is Scrub Up. Chat to you next time.